You're listening to another New Hope Chapel podcast. And today we're going to be continuing in our series on uh, God Unedited, and we'll be covering this morning the God who knocks, the God who wants a relationship with us and who has provided for that very thing. You know, all my life I wanted to be a teacher. I can remember even before I went to school, not even really understanding what a teacher was, telling my mother I was going to be a kindergarten teacher in the morning and a ballet dancer in the afternoon. Um, And I'm kind of glad I pick the teacher thing, because I don't think the ballet thing would have worked out so well. But um, I'm as grateful as, uh, I can't even think of a comparison, <laughs> but I broke my toe making my bed this, this week. <laughs> That's how graceful I am. So it's a good thing I'm not a ballet uh, ballerina. But anyway, um, I, I, my whole life was aimed toward being a teacher. I knew I had to go to college, because yeah, to be a teacher, you got to go to college. And so I planned to be on the college track. Um, when I was a teen, and um, when I finally did get to college, college was hard. I didn't like it that much. As a matter of fact, I didn't like it at all, um, but I persevered and got through it because if I didn't, I wouldn't get to be a teacher, and I wanted to be a teacher, and so I got through those four years of college. Uh, that drive forced me to drive to Maryland, to come down to Maryland and live in Maryland. I didn't even know where that was on the map because I was a New Englander, and um, we don't think anything exists outside of New England. But anyway, I ended up coming down here to get a teaching job because they were scarce, and um, teaching drove much of my early life and, and my, the decisions that I made. And once I became a teacher, I was all in. Steve recalls a time when it was a couple weeks before school was about to start, and I spent the entire day at our dining room table making bulletin boards and all these different things, and he just kept bringing me food <laughs> because I never got up from the table. And um, it, just, it just was a driving force in my life. But you know, it's a funny thing. Um, the Lord started calling me into another ministry later on in my life. I'd been teaching for 20 years and calling me into writing and speaking, and I lost my passion for teaching. And I just didn't understand it. I, you know, I, I, it used to be I was so driven. I mean, up, ready, you know, ready to face the day, excited about what we were going to do. And every day became a chore for me. And walking into that classroom every morning was like a sickening feel, like, oh, I have to get through another day of this, for a couple of years. And I found that without the passion for my profession and without the pa- passion for um, teaching, the whole thing became this terrible burden that I could hardly wait to get rid of. <laughs> and, um, and the Lord did call me out eventually. But it's to trying to live life without that passion, um, it can be excruciating. Now, it can also be like that with our spiritual walk, can it? Um, you know, living life with Christ can be exciting, it can be fulfilling when we're passionate about him. But when we lose that passion, we lose that Uh, sense of just loving him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, as Kristen was quoting today, when we lose that steam, walking with the Lord becomes a burden. And it becomes this list of do's and don'ts. And suddenly we've got that checklist mentality that that they were talking about this morning in the little skit. Well, God wants more for us. He doesn't want us just to have a checklist mentality, a list of do's and don'ts, a list of things that we have to do, another burden to put on us. Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Um, he doesn't want us to settle for this superficial relationship where we're unhappy all of the time. 
So then how do we keep that passion alive? Well, the the letter I'm going to read to you today um, has the answer to that. Um, In the book of Revelation, there's seven letters at the beginning of Revelation, and they're written to seven different churches in Asia Minor. And they give us a flavor, first of all, for the conditions that were going on at the time of um, uh, uh, when John wrote Revelation in the early 90s, AD 90. Um, But more importantly, they really stand as snapshots to how things can go down in a relationship with the Lord. And the one I want to read to you um, is written to the church at Laodicea. Laodicea was the easternmost... Melanie, are you clicking? Oh, there it is. Good. Okay, good. I looked back there and there was no one there and I thought, oh, she's over there. Okay, good. We're good. Okay, so um, anyway, Laodicea was one of the seven churches and you can see it's the easternmost church there. Um, and uh, they were comprised of, it was an interesting town. They were very wealthy. Um, after the earthquake of, the, of 60 BC, the Roman government came in and helped different um, towns in the area get reestablished because a lot of the damage that had been done in the earthquake. And Laodicea refused the money. They, had, they got it. They had enough money to take care of themselves. Um, real indication of the kind of wealth that existed there. Also, there was, um, they were located at a very important travel intersection, so they had a lot of commercial things going on. They were a financial center, um, so they were, they were wealthy. Manufacturing center also. They were known for a soft wool that they um, produced that was glossy black in color. And finally, they were also known to be the seat of a famous school of medicine. And that uh, school developed, developed a certain eye salve an eye ointment um, that was known to cure eye diseases. And all that's going to figure into this letter as I read it to you. It's not just silly trivia. It was a church who, in their material comforts and their financial security, had grown complacent in their relationship with God. And, you know, that can happen to any of us, can it? Especially here in the United States where every need is met. What Jesus says to them gives them, us, them and us, the keys to keeping our relationship with him passionate and devoted. So let's read uh, together. If you have your Bible, you can open to Revelation 3. I've got the verses up here, um, verse 14 to 22. Here's the letter. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor uh, cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I shall to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Let's pray. God, we thank you for this letter. We thank you that there's a message in it for us, as well as the church of Laodicea that existed so long ago. And we just ask, Lord, for your guidance as we go through this. Help me not to get in the way, Lord, but just to clearly present um, the truth of your word and use it to transform us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, of the church of Laodicea, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God, says this. Now, each of the seven letters are preceded with Christ, Jesus, presenting himself in a role that's fitting for what's going on within that church. It's very specific. Laodicea had become lukewarm. They were complacent in their devotion to Christ. And it was really a result of self-delusion. We'll get into that in a little bit. So Jesus starts by identifying himself in ways that actually reveal things about their problem. So it's interesting. We're going to look at these three titles he gives himself. First, he calls himself the Amen. The Amen implies certainly the final word, right? The truth, fixed, true, unchangeable. Um, it speaks of his sovereignty and his ability and, uh, to fulfill his promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God in him are yea, and in him amen, unto the glory of God by us. And it really stands in contrast the way that the Laodiceans are acting. Secondly, he calls himself the faithful and true witness. Scripture depicts Jesus as a witness in many places. In John 3.34, it says, For he whom God sent speaks the words of God, and he gives the Spirit without measure. That witness is, is testifying to what you know to be true, and that's what Jesus does. Um, and a faithful witness can be trusted um, never to misrepresent the truth and God's message. Jesus speaks the truth. And that, of course, again, is in contrast to Laodicea, which is neither faithful nor true at this point. And here's the third one, which I really found kind of eye-opening. He calls himself the beginning of the creation of God. Now, that's a little bit of a tricky phrase because we know that Jesus was not created by God because um, he is God. And so how, well, how is he called the beginning of the creation? Well, the word is arche in the Greek, and it's an active word. So in other words, he begins See the difference? So he's the originator. He's the initiator of creation. He's creation's source, like an arche ahead of a river. He, he's the source of that beginning of creation. Well, why would Jesus pick that one for the church of Laodicea? And I had to think about that, and then I made a little discovery. Because I was thinking back, I've written a book about Colossians, and I was thinking about in Colossians, Paul addresses the idea that they have taken Christ and they've kind of demoted him. And they're not um, exactly uh, saying, or they, they weren't believing things about Jesus that were to be true. Um, and you can tell that from Paul's letter to them, that one side of the conversation. This is what Paul writes to the Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before, there's that RK word, all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul was showing them that the false teaching that was going on in Colossae was about the idea of diminishing Christ and what his role is as 
as the creator, and they were making him out to be lesser than he really was. And then, in Colossians 4.16, Paul asks that this letter that he's just written to the Colossians be sent to Laodicea, because evidently they were having the same problem. He wrote that Epaphras had a deep concern for you, that's the Colossians, and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. I think what was going on, and this is a little bit of conjecture, but I think there's good evidence that I've just given you here, that Laodicea was having a problem with the deity of Christ, and they had diminished who Christ was. And that's what... um, and that's an important thing to note as we get along here because um, it's, Jesus is identifying himself as the source of creation, not one that's been created, and therefore not letting them diminish who he is. Because when we diminish God, we make him less than what he really is, we lose our basis for passion. You know, just reading or singing that last song, The Power of Your Name, didn't that just inspire love for God? Thinking about how powerful he was, how great he was, how nothing could stand before just the mention of his name, that just inspires passion in us. If we diminish who Christ is, that passion gets diminished as well. So it seems like that was the problem for the Galatians, excuse me, the Laodiceans. So then he goes on, and Christ says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were hot or cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, I was just telling Bill this morning, I really, I've heard how this usually goes down in people when they're interpreting this little passage. And one thing that I see, and I saw that I have a lot of commentaries. I went to seminary. And so I have all kinds of big, thick, scholarly books that I read when I'm going through these things, after I've already interpreted it myself, mind you. But anyway, when I was doing that, I made this horrifying discovery that every single commentary said the exact same thing, and they were all wrong. And I, and I don't say that with any kind of um, uh, arrogance. I don't mean it like that at all. But I do want to show you what they said and how it just doesn't ring true. Okay, the first one's what they said. I even hesitated to put this on in writing because I don't want you to remember these. (laughs) But I want to show you where they were going with it. The first common interpretation is that the Laodiceans were not really saved. This was the one church that weren't really, had not come to a believing faith in Jesus Christ. And I thought to myself, whoa, wait, where are you getting that from? So I started looking back and I went all the way back to the beginning of Revelation 1 and it explains who the seven churches are, who the letters are to, right there in Revelations 1. And it says, to the seven churches that are in Asia, to him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us, seven churches, to be a kingdom, priest to God and his father. So how can they get to the letter to Laodicea and say, oh, uh, they weren't really Christians? I'm sorry, in Revelation 1, they were identified as such, and I just can't go there. Um, Those recipients of those seven letters were saved, and they were part of the kingdom of God. They're kings and priests. So their lukewarmness is in the context of having a relationship with God. That's the first one, debunked. 
out. Second one, there's three different um, spiritual states that are in this, these, this little letter. The first is hot, the second is cold, and the third is lukewarm. Don't think so. And this is why. So they say, they, well, they said, you know, the, the hot is, you know, a genuine spiritual fervor and leaves no question as to evidence of eternal life. That's what they define hot as. Cold is that the gospel has left them unmoved. They have not responded to the gospel and they, it has aroused no interest, interest whatsoever. And lukewarm shows some interest, but they're kind of hypocritical. They're not doing the right things. Um, may, we'll call those professing Christians who attend church, but their attitudes and actions really raise questions concerning the reality of their spiritual life. That's how they define these three things. They t- and commentators take that and run with it. But where it kind of got me stopped short is the cold. Why would Jesus prefer us to totally reject the gospel to being lukewarm about it? It doesn't make sense at all to me. And I kept thinking about that and say, why would he want, why would he prefer us to totally reject him rather than show some interest, some promise, possibly? He'd rather us be on our way to hell after he died for all mankind? What's that about? You know, 2 Peter tells us that God is not willing that any should perish. Um, he's not, and it, it says, the Lord is patient with you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So this assumption that Jesus would rather us be on our way to hell than lukewarm doesn't pan out to me when you look at the rest of the New Testament context and how we know he thinks. And third, another commentary, common thing is God will reject us if we're lukewarm. That somehow we can move ourselves out of a relationship, a saving relationship with him. And so that, um, you know, because I will spit you out of my mouth. And that's where they're getting that from. So somehow our acceptance of him becomes based on our merit. Or our, our, his acceptance of us is based on our merit. If we really respond, if we have fervor, then he'll accept us. But if we're, you know, wishy-washy, we don't do all the right things, then you're out. Well, how is that ever about grace? So that doesn't make sense. You see why I was struggling with that? These three things just didn't make sense to me. And I think the reason why these commentators and other people who have preached this thing have come to the the wrong conclusions is I think they're looking at this metaphor a little bit of the wrong way. I don't think there are three spiritual states here. I think there are two. And let me show you where, where I'm going with this. The first of all... In uh, Laodicea, there, it was a, the, the way that the geography was set up, there were three cities close by each other. Okay? The, and in Hierapolis, the waters that were underground were hot springs. They were hot and they were medicinally useful. And so that, that was a good thing, those hot springs. And then the pure water of Colossae had that beautiful cold refreshment to it. So both of those Things were really, really useful and really great, okay? But Laodicea, in the middle of them, was lukewarm, and it was good for nothing. Didn't serve a medicinal purpose and had a lot of sulfur and other additives to it that made it really hard to drink. I think what Jesus was saying here is, 
useless or useful, useless, two spiritual states. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's where I think he's going with it. That the indifference is the problematic one. So how does it make them useless? Well, it's not an accurate representation of whom they represent. How does God want to use the church? He wants to use the church to show himself to the world. And if they're in a lukewarm state, they are not useful in that capacity. This is what Jesus told his disciples. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What are our good deeds? They're to glorify God. They're to show God to the rest of the world. In Ephesians, Paul says, The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. Our responsibility is to show God to the world, and we do it through our deeds. And so God has chosen in this age to reveal himself through the church, and the works are how they see him revealed. Well, the Laodiceans' works were useless, neither hot nor cold. And I think that's where that this metaphor comes. So how did that relationship with God come to this? Well, Jesus tells us in the next section. He says, because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now let's go over a couple of those terms. I am rich. The, the, it's in the perfect tense. It's uh, in the Greek. It's I have got rich. It carries the force of the idea that my wealth is due to my own exertions. My own, as Kristen said, checklist, right? It's about, it's about me and what I'm doing. Then he, sh- he gives these other five, or five adjectives to show them their reality. That's what they think. But this is the reality, folks. You're wretched. You're miserable. You're distressed. The lexicon that I looked it up gave... Um, it said that it was the opposite of another word, makarios, which means fortunate or happy because of circumstances. So here you've got this wretched is the idea of miserable because of their circumstances. Uh, miserable is the next word, he says, because you're never truly happy when your source of security and strength is from you because it always leaves us craving more. It's not enough. Nelson Rockefeller was once asked, how much is enough where you can finally start to relax? You know what he said? A little bit more. Even a man as rich as him really couldn't rest in it, couldn't be satisfied. They were miserable in their temporal wealth. Then Jesus calls them poor. Um, it's derived from the verb of someone who crouches and cowers as a beggar. Now that would have been kind of a harsh word to use with the Laodiceans because they were a wealthy community. But Jesus is telling you in actuality, you're poor. You're blind. It's an adjective often used of a mental or spiritual blindness. And, of course, we get that reference, that idea of that I-self that they were so famous for in the city. And then finally, naked. It made me think of the emperor's new clothes. You all know that story, I'm sure, where the emperor hires these hooligans to come in and make him a beautiful set of clothes. And they tell him they're working away, but they don't look like they're doing anything. Nobody sees any clothes. Everybody's wondering. Finally, the king comes. The day is ready. And they, they, try, they hold up. What do you think? And they said, you know, only the smartest of people can actually see them. So this, it's a real you know, tell to the intelligence of someone if they think there's nothing here. So, of course, the king says, oh, they're beautiful. Never seen anything like it. And he pretends to put on these clothes. 
And then he parades through the streets, stark naked, to be able to, you know, to be thinking he, he looks beautiful, but in the end, he really is naked after all. And a little boy finally says, the king doesn't have any clothes on. And suddenly he realized the fool he has been. And it's a kind of especially poignant comparison, being naked, when they're in the city famous for the black soft wool that they produced. So you put it all together, all of these adjectives, and what do you come up with? Their lukewarmness lay in their non-recognition of their own need. They didn't get it. And because they didn't get it, they were lukewarm. What they believed was not based on truth of their real condition. You know, self-sufficiency, that idea that I'm doing this on my own, it's the enemy of a relationship with God. We We think we don't need him, and we'd rather trust in our own abilities than trust in him. It's part of the flesh. We all stray toward it at times and have to pull ourselves back in. Remember, Jesus taught this to his disciples in Luke. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because a rich man is sufficient, self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. The foundation of a relationship with God has to be based on trusting him for who he is and what he's done for us. A relationship with God has to be on his terms. So now that Jesus has identified the problem, here's the solution. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I sell to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Go back to the beginning of our relationship. When you realized you were inadequate to do anything about your salvation, but God was. Go back there. That's what he's telling them. It seems to be a reference, I think anyway, to Isaiah 55.1. This is what it says, this prophet. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Remember what Laodicea was famous for. Now Jesus uses these familiar things to urge them back to the relationship with him. Remember the gold, the wealth? It's a picture of high-quality faith, a faith that's capable of withstanding trials. Um, Purification of gold is often used as a metaphor um, that God is refining us. It says in 1 Peter, So the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So gold. Also white garments. Go back to what established the relationship, the covering, the statement that made the the relationship possible in the first place. Isaiah 1 says, Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will be like wool. And Revelation 7.14 tells us about the martyrs, and it says, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Those white garments come, that covering, that atonement covering that covers our sin and makes us right with God. That's what he's calling them back to. And then finally, the eye salve. Anoint your eyes so you can see. 
the, the cure for the spiritual blindness would really be listening to the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians tells us, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who's from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things also we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. Jesus is calling them back to that original relationship when the Holy Spirit is teaching and guiding and you're not listening to your own words of wisdom and your own words of self-sufficiency, but listening to him. And then he goes on and he says this, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. That idea of repentance is turning around turning away from how you've been thinking back to what you need to be. In that further passage in Isaiah 55, a little further down, it says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord, for he will have compassion on him and to our God, and he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. God is calling them to turn away from that self-sufficiency back to him who wants to show himself to be the provider. He's calling them back to the relationship and the truth of what that relationship really is. Why? says it right here. Because he loves them. Now, the commentators who have already taken this other stand about the lukewarm spitting out of your mouth thing, um, which I think, as I showed you, was wrong, they, they are saying that God will reject them. He's telling them because he's standing in judgment of them right now. I don't think so. I think he's calling them because he loves them, and they're a mess. They've strayed from the truth. They've become dependent on themselves. They've compromised what they think of Jesus, and they no longer are living lives of trust. They've become useless to the kingdom, and what's more, they're miserable. And God sees them in that state and wants to pull them back in. I think that's what this is talking about. He loves them too much to allow them to continue down the path of their own destruction. So he's giving them a wake-up call in love. Turn around how you're thinking. Come back to me, to the relationship. In the only terms acceptable, remember who I am. Remember what I've done for you. That's your remedy. Uh, The word reprove is a verbal rebuke designed to bring somebody around to acknowledge his fault. The chasten is actually a rebuke followed by action. So you have a verbal, then an action. And then finally, he tells them to be zealous, and that's embracing this new habit. And then finally, the repentance, which is the response to the zealousness. And I want you to notice, the zealousness comes first. The loving comes first, and then comes the action, the repentance. Christ's words are meant to bring them back to relationship that will furnish the very passion that they're lacking that makes them lukewarm. And in his love, he's guiding them to what they need and they're miserable without. And he tells them this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, and I will dine with him, and he with me. He overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, and I also overcame and sat down with my Father in heaven on his throne. Now, something interesting came up when I looked up the Greek in this little passage because the words, I stand at the door and knock, are in the Greek perfect tense. And the Greek perfect tense 
is a completed action, something that's already happened once and for all, that never needs to be repeated. It's done. I have taken my stand. He's already done everything that we needed for to have a relationship with him. I'm here. And present tense, I am knocking. This continual idea of continuing to knock, but his stand was made a long time ago. Isn't that beautiful? So he's got this whole idea of he has done it all, and now he's inviting us in. This is the relationship I created for you to be able to have, and I knock, waiting for you to respond. And what is he inviting them to? Supper. Now, supper was the last meal of the day back in Bible times, and still is today, I guess. And it was, according to custom, the usual occasion of hospitality. So if you were going to have somebody over, you'd have them for dinner, which is kind of like it is now. Um, it was the one to which an honored guest would be invited. And eating together, that, that act of having a meal and sharing it together, was proof of confidence in that person, because you wouldn't invite somebody you didn't trust to your dinner table, and also to your affection for that person. It was a real gesture of um, giving honor to that person. So to be assured of such a meal opportunity with the Lord was a pledge of enjoying the closest possible association with him. That's what he's knocking for us to come. He wants to have that kind of a relationship with us. Okay, so now we come to the rest. So what? How should this letter addressed to a church in 90 A.D., Uh, impact my life today well do you want to be an effective part of god's kingdom do you want that kind of relationship with him just like for the laodiceans it's all about the nature of what you're basing your relationship with him on because god for some strange reason has decided that he's going to reveal himself through the church and any of you who have been in the church and i mean capital c church long enough you know that we are a big mess and why in the world he'd choose us to reveal him is beyond me. But he wants us to reflect him in us like a mirror reflects the sunlight. And what are we reflecting? We're reflecting what we know to be true about him because we want to show him to the world. So Jesus instructed the Laodiceans to repent, to change how they're thinking about God and themselves, and that would fuel their fire. That would make them effective. That would make them from lukewarm to hot and cold. Effective. Well, we have to do the same thing to keep our passion, the fire of our passion, burning. So what do we do? We make sure that Christ is on the throne in our minds, that we give him all of the credit, all of the glory, understand exactly who he is, and not diminish him in any way. And secondly, we need to acknowledge our helplessness, that it's not about us and what we're doing for the kingdom. It's what he's doing, and and it's about him. And the truth of who God is will fuel passion for him. It will rekindle the fire that's been banked. Now, in closing, I want to tell you a little story about a town in Pennsylvania. You may have heard of it. It's called Centralia, Pennsylvania. And the underground of Centralia has been burning for 53 years. Uh, it started, the town is sitting on four of the largest known coal veins in the world. They're not really sure what event started the fire. There are a couple of things that could have, and everybody kind of claims something different. Either um, there was a, they had a landfill cleanup at one point in 1962, and they uh, dumped or they set a fire to, to clean up this trash, 
and uh, they think that maybe the fire kind of seeped down into where the mine was and started the fire there. The coal is what's burning in the coal veins. Or it could have been, um, you know, another. they had another time where a dump truck dumped a pile of live ash, and they think maybe that got down in there. There's lots of theories about it. But the fire started in 1962, and at first it seemed like more of a nuisance than anything. I mean, it was underground. So a little smoke came up here and there out of the tunnels, no big deal. But as the fire spread over the years, it got higher, harder to ignore. Um, sulfurous fumes and carbon monoxide started seeping out of the mine in all kinds of places, filling people's basements and houses so that they it would you know, have the potential of suffocating them. And as the coal burned away, the ground started collapsing in sinkholes in different places. And uh, one, one kid actually fell into a sinkhole, but he, he didn't die. His cousin rescued him. But... Um, it, was, it became a big mess. And so in the, by the 1980s, they realized they weren't going to be able to live there anymore. And so the government came in, and they paid off a lot of people and got them relocated like Love Canal did. And, um, and so most of the people moved away. Um, they went from a town of 7, 000, uh, 2,000 in 1982, I believe it was. And at now, right now, the town has seven residents living in it old people that just don't want to leave. And so they've made an agreement with the government that they can stay. The rest of the town has been raised. There's nothing left. If you look at it from on high, you can see the roads and everything where things used to be, but now it's just vegetation and smoke. But here's the crazy thing. The fire now covers six square miles under the ground and spreads 75 feet a year. And they estimate that the fuel underground will keep this fire burning for 250 more years. It's an inexhaustible fuel supply. And the fire is going to continue on from our lifetime and beyond. We have an inexhaustible, unlimited source of fuel for our passion for God. He's bigger than anything we currently imagine. No thought we can think of him can be bigger or better than who he is. The more we learn about him, the bigger our picture of him gets. That's fuel for the passion for him. It's a fuel supply that will never be exhausted. And when we focus on him and on those things, our passion will burn bright. And our resulting deeds will light up the darkness around us. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you're so awesome. We thank you for what you have done for us, for who you are, that you are so beyond any of our capability of even understanding. We want to know you better, Lord. Help us to know you better day by day, and as we do so, that our passion for you will continually be fueled and that we will not fall into a lukewarm state. We thank you, God, for these truths. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's New Hope podcast. Chapel's Located podcast. in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body larger of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love him, follow him, to learn from him, to let him lead us and change our lives. We are his disciples and he is our rabbi. Is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash newhopechapelmd. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.